welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of Big Nerdy Questions. If you're still with us after last week and you didn't die by walking into a physical manifestation of an onomatopoeia, congratulations. Uh, so well done on you. And this week, we you may have noticed that last season we didn't get a chance to talk about a little thing that came out called Rogue One. It's a little thing, but we're a Star Wars uh, podcast in some ways. And uh, yeah, we're talking about it now. So to join me on our Rogue One discussion, we have Matt. Yes, yes, indeed. We have Ed. I am one with the Force. The Force is with me. And we have Colleen. Oh, welcome back, Internet. I'm still here. Woo! The Star Wars gang is here. We're all back together yet again for your auditory amusements. Uh, And we have a sponsor tonight, don't we, Matt? That's right, Josh. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Rogue Pun. Rogue Pun. It's like Star Wars, but with Josh. Yes, that, that is exactly what I would do. I said an unholy alliance. Yes, even more frightening than the Trade Federation. But is it as bad as that one cave on Dig? Probably. You mean the LSD cave? Yeah. <laughs> one cave makes you smarter. No, um. You know, I mean, just Yoda, his little, I mean, first of all, his crazy stew, I'm sure he slipped something into that, gave it to Luke, and was like, hey, why don't you go check out that cave over there? You know that Yoda was at the Coruscant version of Woodstock, right? Not even surprised. He's like nine years old. I mean, I'm not surprised if he's gone to many of those things in his past. <laughs> I'd just like to imagine Palpatine walking around in sandals, smoking dope. That'd be kind of funny. <laughs> Darth Sidious, man, that's a great name. It means that I'm, like, super sadistic, but also kind of German. Anyway, uh, so speaking of backstories and characters, Colleen, I've heard, I think your recommendation is uh, perfect for this. What is it? Uh, my recommendation is actually from the Star Wars uh, Extended Universe or Star Wars Legends. Um, it's the uh, book one of the Thrawn trilogy. It's called Heir to the Empire. The entire trilogy is great, but um, if you only have time or only inclined to read one, um, I suggest reading the first book, um, Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn. It was originally published, I think, in the early 90s, but it is credited with reinvigorating the entire Star Wars franchise. Uh, and it occurs five years after the Battle of Yavin. Uh, Han and Leia are married, uh, expecting twins, and Luke is trying to rebuild his order. While at the same time, the uh, fledgling New Republic is still battling the remnants of the Empire, and Grand Admiral Thrawn, who is uh, the last uh, Grand Moff, uh, takes command of whatever is left of the um, Imperial Navy and tries to destroy the New Republic. Oh, and there's like a crazy, crazy evil Jedi involved, too. Also Mara Jade. Yeah, yes, her too. <laughs> An evil Jedi, that sounds interesting. Uh, yeah, he's just slightly cray-cray. That's fine, we can deal with that. And, and the reason that, you, that you've chosen a extended universe book is the actual question for the evening, which is, is Rogue One a strong addition to the Star Wars canon? So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to discuss the movie, of course, But then we're going to bring in our knowledge of the original Extended Universe, and I know three people no no more qualified to do this than Ed, Matt, and Colleen, uh, to see if Rogue One, and in fact The Force Awakens as well to some extent, is a stronger addition to the canon than what it supplanted, to what it replaced. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But before we get into the meat of Rogue One, we do want to take a minute to acknowledge Carrie Fisher, uh, and we'll dedicate this episode to her. Uh, She is one of the most iconic people in the history of nerddom period, uh, but particularly as Princess Leia, but also in her work later in life. Uh, Carrie Fisher was an amazing person, and we dearly miss her, uh, even a few months after her passing, we'll miss her for some time. Uh, We did reach out, uh, all of us on BNQ reached out to some people for some comments, uh, and JP, who's not on the panel tonight, actually got two really strong um, quotes from people about Carrie Fisher, which I'm going to share real quickly. First, from a listener named Zach. He said, There aren't enough words to express what Princess Leia meant to not just one, but successive generations of young girls around the world. 
As a man, I can't speak to that, but I can begin to say what Princess Leia meant to me as a young boy. Princess Leia showed me that strength is not incompatible with sensitivity, that resolve is not incompatible with reason, and that courage is not incompatible with compassion. Watching Princess Leia fight alongside the boys and cuddle up with the Ewoks forced me to critically confront everything that I had learned about masculinity and femininity from society and media. It ultimately helped me to reject the more pathological and dangerous aspects of masculinity and to embrace a more empathetic and vulnerable version of masculinity. Princess Leia in Star Wars and Carrie Fisher in Life taught me that you can be strong and still need help from others, that strength is not a measure of one's individual power, but rather of the power of the relationships that one creates and sustains with others through love and mutual support. Thank you, Zach, for that great thought. Jamie S., uh, wrote in and said this, Carrie Fisher is best known for playing one of the strongest female characters in pop culture. While Princess Leia stood her ground against the Empire, the woman who brought the character to life is the one I look up to most. Carrie Fisher had always been open and honest about her struggles with mental illness and addiction. As a young woman struggling with my own issues with mental illness and addiction, Carrie Fisher was a beacon of hope, showing me that these issues were not the alpha and the omega of my life. During a particularly low time in my early 20s, I had borrowed a copy of one of her books, Postcards from the Edge, from the local library. It's a novel that isn't entirely autobiographical, but it still takes a lot from Carrie's life. At the time, I was trying to dry out, so to speak, from drinking, and I needed an escape. Needless to say, the book opened my eyes to what Carrie had experienced in her life at my age. It gave me a view into the life of a woman who was open about her struggles and personal demons, and was able to come out on the other side. It taught me that it was possible to not only push back against these issues, but to emerge victorious no matter what it took. For all of this and so much more, I will always be grateful to Carrie Fisher. Thank you, Jamie, and thank you, Zach, for those amazingly well uh, put together thoughts and your eloquence is very much appreciated. Uh, so real quickly, guys, uh, what did Carrie Fisher mean to you guys real quickly? Uh, personally, um, I was actually Princess Leia for Halloween twice in my life. Um, and I just always loved her as, you know, her character. Um, she was completely, you know, badass as a space princess. I remember um, as a little girl watching her, watching her in the Star Wars films, just being struck by the fact that, she was like a self-rescuing princess. She didn't need any guy to rescue her. And she even rescued uh, the hero a couple times, which I just thought was really awesome. And um, her uh, passing was a very deep shock to me um, and even to my brother-in-law, who's not a big Star Wars fan. But when I told him that she had passed, he just was silent and then he said, I feel like I need to go watch Star Wars now. And he actually did. He went into another room and watched the entire trilogy as like his own like personal homage to, to Carrie Fisher, which I found actually deeply touching since he's not, like I said, a, a very big Star Wars fan. But even her passing um, really, you know, shocked, you know, and affected him as well. So but for me personally, uh, you know, Princess Leia is uh, is my hero. Absolutely. Uh, Ed? You know, uh, far more has been said by people who are far more eloquent than me. But to me, she was the epitome of strength as a hero from a female perspective when I was a child. And, and that was touched upon by many other people. Uh, not only that, but as we've said, she's an advocate. She was an advocate for substance abuse and mental uh, illness. But uh, beyond that, she was just an incredibly funny person, mm -hmm. and she was not above making fun of herself. If you watch any other films she's been in, like Fanboys or like Jay and Silent Bob films, she's not above. She was not above making fun of herself, and you know, just having a good time with it. And I think that you know, we as a whole, you know are poorer for her being gone and I, there's not a day that goes by or any time that I see any of the various Star Wars things in, strewn throughout my house, many of them including Princess Leia's likeness on it that I won't think about her and what she's done for, for sci-fi, for fiction, for all of us. Matt? <clears throat> so, for, for me, you know, I, I grew up on Star Wars and, you know, that's, that's what most of us know her from and she she was the first major female character in a film that I saw as a child. So that was kind of a formative experience for me 
was that she kind of, between her and my mother and my grandmother, you know, they all showed me different types of strong women leading. And that, I think, helped form a lot of how I see people. And so it, it kind of helped shape my perspective throughout my life. And I think it was important for her to be in that that strong female lead role in 1977. Because, you know, that far back, there there weren't a ton of women in strong roles. There, there was, you know, there was the Wonder Woman show from that era, and that was pretty much it before before her. But also after that, and outside of Star Wars, she she was an accomplished author, and you know everybody focuses on mostly postcards from the edge because it, it was her it was her first book, and it it was really important because it was at a time when there were massive addiction epidemics all over the country in the late 80s and she came out as a celebrity and actually talked about addiction and it kind of took away the otherness of addiction for a lot of people because it was like wow if it can happen to carrie fisher then i'm sure as hell not immune to it and she, you know she also wrote a lot of other really good books which i I really would recommend to our listeners to read mm-hmm. because she, you know she also had wishful drinking and uh, she she had a couple of novels, Delusions of Grandma, uh, The Best Awful There Is, and Princess Diarist came out you know shortly before either shortly before or shortly after she passed. And you know I would certainly recommend reading as many of her books as you can get your hands mm-hmm. on. Yeah, thanks guys for your thoughts. Carrie Fisher is an icon and always will be an icon, and she now is amongst the stars. Um, but I like sometimes that the fact that you know at least you know Colleen, Matt, and I were all trained in history, and we know that the true measure of a person is how much they can live in this legacy and have a story forever. And in that way, Carrie Fisher will never really die because she will be remembered amongst the icons forever. So that is a, a good thing. And to segue to our Rogue One discussion, by the way, spoiler alert for the rest of the episode, uh, Carrie Fisher shows up, kind of, in Rogue One. Ish. Ish, yeah. So we'll get to the ending in a minute, but I, we do want to talk about the Rogue One movie, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, or as I like to call it, The Magnificent Seven in space. Uh, Star Wars 3.5. <laughs> Star Wars 3.9. <laughs> yeah, it, it's right at the top there, yeah. So, I think the first thing we're going to go into for Rogue One is character. And Colleen, I wanted to start with you on this one because in our podcast on backstory, you said that Jen, Jen Erso, had one of the best backstories, or origin stories, sorry, of a character that you've seen. So what are your overall thoughts on Jen and the rest of the, the cast? Not, well, not the cast, but the rest of the characters. Well, I mean, obviously, since I picked her from the earlier podcast as being one of my top two choices for, you know, best origin story, um, I really enjoyed Jen's character. I really enjoyed the fact that she just wasn't one of those heroes that's like, oh, you know, the Empire is evil and the Alliance is good, and I'm just going to, I'm gonna, I want to do good, so I'm going to be with the good guys. Like, she had her own desires, her own path, and she didn't want to join up with the Alliance, and she really only kind of sort of did. I mean, she was really pursuing her own interests, and I just, I really admired about that about her. She was very strong, very independent, uh, you know, uh, capable, you know, person. As for uh, the other characters, um... I enjoyed them. I, uh, spoiler alert, actually really appreciated what the writers did in having to kill them all off. Uh, I felt that was necessary for the story. I know other people probably were disappointed because you wanted to get to know them more. But, I mean, quite frankly, where would they fit within the larger timeline, you know, of Star Wars? It's incredibly difficult to introduce new characters uh, this late, you know, in the game when the rest of the story has already been written. Um, and so I felt that was an appropriate action to take. And um, and I honestly really do enjoy it when the writers take risks like that. Um, 
Krennic as a character. You know, I liked him. I enjoyed him, you know, for being like the imperial douchebag that he was supposed to be. So, you know, thanks <laughs> to him for uh, playing that part very well. Uh, you know, CGI Tarkin. It was great seeing, you know, Peter Cushing again, even if he was uh, computery. I wish, the one thing, though, I will say about the characterizations that I really, really wish they had left out was the Darth Vader dad pun. That just... <laughs> that entire Don't choke on your aspirations. I, that was an audible groan for me in the movie. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but Darth Vader just doesn't make puns. <laughs> no, that's me in Star Wars uh, Rogue Pun. Uh, that's right. Uh, yeah, no. that, that was the see there you go there was that crossover you know with that <laughs> old universe right there well of all the things jj abrams or this you know took from my <clears throat> took notes from me for the star trek episode i guess the one thing he did was pass along to the producers of rogue one that maybe a pun is a good idea now and then doesn't save the star trek franchise but that's another show uh, <laughs> i think we're still trying to recover from all of the horrible puns that we were subjected to from c3po um and just Jar Jar Binks in the you know prequel trilogy. Mm, yes. <laughs> so George Lucas does not mind a, a good pun or even a bad one for that sake. Uh. Are there really any such things as good puns? I'm just kidding. If you're anyway. listening to this show, I hope you think so. <laughs> uh, the one thing I, I'll bring up Krennic for a minute, and I wanted to get your take on this, Matt. I thought personally Krennic was an interesting character, but the inclusion of Tarkin kind of undercut Krennic as an evil overlord. Like, you, you you can't really take him as seriously as you otherwise would because you know that he is kowtowing to, to Tarkin the whole time. Did you find that as well? Well, it... Uh, I didn't really think it diminished him as a character. I, I think I think he was well-written, and he, and he certainly served his place. Because someone like Tarkin, who is as high up in the Empire as he is would not be manually overseeing that unless there was you know some kind of direct intervention from the top going on kind of thing and that that does happen in government in general you know so, somebody way at the top will start deciding that they want something to go a certain way and you know experts be damned but <clears throat> I actually enjoyed that interaction between them because it showed the tension and it gave more depth to the entire mm. project and your glimpse yeah. into the inner workings of the Empire. Yeah, I, I thought it, it showed an additional depth to the actual complexity of the bureaucracy. Like we discussed last season with just the sheer size of bureaucracy and running an, a galactic empire. Yes. You know, you're going to have to have people in positions like Krennic. And yes, there will be there will be times when somebody will come down over their head and overrule them and just say, well, no, this is how we're going to do it. And you're going to deal with it because I said so and I'm I'm your boss. He's definitely the most evil middle management character since the guy in office space. Yeah. But, you know, you really have to admire Krennic's dedication to his job because he just ran all over, like, the far ends of the galaxy to try to stop those plans from getting out. So hats off to him for, you know, just going all the way with that one. I mean, he did sacrifice everything for that job, literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, Ed, I know in talking to you before the episode, I don't think you share the rest of our affinity for some of the characters, in particular a few of them. Is that correct? Well, it's not a really lack of affinity. It was, well, I just don't feel, and this will be excused to a degree because in this kind of movie like The Dirty Dozen or Magnificent Seven, whatever, you don't get a chance to become attached to the characters, but with the exception of maybe Jen and Krennic, you get no exposure to their backstory. It's very brief. It's brief shots of, okay, Chirut's a monk. Baze was a monk. And then this and this and this. Going over the show notes, I actually had to look up the Imperial pilot that defected back to the to the rebellion because I couldn't remember his name. Was, and that's that's and his name was Bodhi, by the way. But it, that it, he didn't stick in my mind. When I was watching Episode 7... I sure as crap remembered Poe Dameron and Kylo Ren and all of these characters. And yes, they're building them up for further, you know, installments. But some of the characters just didn't leave a long-standing impact because they didn't do much with them. And the only reason I ha I went in 
with uh, a higher investment in a few of the characters because I read the prequel novel Catalyst, and uh, th- therefore I, I knew more about Krennic, and I actually like Krennic both in the movie and in the book. As a villain, he's a good he's a good character, and I think it's almost criminal how little they used Mad Mickelson in that film. I mean, how many scenes did he have, guys? Like two. Uh, it's just it, I love the movie. I'm not I'm not complaining about the movie. I think I might have liked it more overall than Episode Seven, but the characters just didn't come off the screen like they did for Episode Seven. D- does anybody disagree with that? You know, well, actually, I had a really hard time remembering the names of pretty much everybody else. Uh, see, it's not just me. <laughs> same here. But you remember, but you remembered Poe Dameron. You remembered BB-8. You remembered Kylo Ren. I mean. Well, I the- different is because they had more screen time yes this is true you know in comparison and plus i mean it is a new edition and i was thinking back to when i very first time i saw the star wars films and there were uh you know secondary or even tertiary characters that at the time i was like dude that's in a pipe that's in a plane that does something and something happens and someone dies but now years later i've been exposed to them enough that i know who they are Mm -hmm. you know like dak you know luke yes you know, Gunner. See, hello. You know exactly who that is. But initially, wedge. when you're well, everybody knows Wedge. But I mean, Dak in uh, the Empire Strikes Back, who gets you know killed uh, during the Battle of Hoth. I mean, initially well, you watch the movie and you're just like, oh, it's some random guy. But then years later, because you've watched the movies enough, you're like, oh yeah, everybody knows who he is, or Porkins and things like that. But yeah. but uh, but the difference is though. You remembered the main characters after the first time you saw it. You just said that you had trouble remembering, I'm like not I did. Really but sure that I would classify all Bodhi? those other people, yeah, Bodhi and them as main characters. I, I would consider them secondary characters. They're part of the fellowship. <laughs> uh. The very brief fellowship, yes. Uh, no, I I did like like. Cassian was kind of boring to me, honestly. I just, he was a one-note character. Jen was the most interesting, well, I take that back. K2SO was the most interesting character, but, yeah. <laughs> but Jen had a, Jen was the only one that really had a story arc. Uh, well, yeah, I, again, I think it, I think it just goes back to what's the point of the film. Um, and I would really would have liked to have known what the movie originally was before they went back and did all their, you know, their reshoots. Um, yeah. yeah. But, the focus, the focus of the story or the point of the entire movie is to become that handoff to episode four. It's a, the focus is on the plans. It's very difficult within that context to try to introduce new characters and new backgrounds because then things get so crazy and muddled. And then we have another uh, episode one, episode two, episode three. In our- no, yeah, I'll, I'll make a statement there that, you know, uh, in story crafting, there is the character driven story and the plot driven story. This I was plot. This was plot. Episode 7, you could argue either way, probably more so character, uh, but this was plot. It didn't take anything away from the movie for me, but if I'm being honest, I just didn't connect with most of the characters. And I understand, in any kind of war movie, you're going to have a bunch of cast members that are there solely to die. Well, in this instance, they were all there to die, but that's beside the point. The reason why we get upset about these characters that we didn't really get to know too much is because of... um, all of the uh, like the snapshots and you know movie trailers, etc. They spent a lot of time introducing these new characters to us before the movie came out, and then we watch the movie and we don't really see much of them. Again, I think that has a lot to do with their decisions to do reshoots. And, um, and I know, I know what I know what Disney is going to do, and I understand it. They're going to do a bunch of supplemental material. They've already announced a Bayes and Chirrut novel that takes place well before all of this. I get that and I understand it, and I'm sure it's crap going to go read it because Chirrut was Chirrut was my favorite new character of that film. Donnie Yen is amazing, and that whole blind monk was so cool. But yeah, the part where they in the movie where they blindfold him, and he's like, "Really? Really? I'm blind." <laughs> I lo- I loved his character. I really did. Uh, you know, I think part of this, and I'll just, you know, real quickly before we get on to the next part of it, we've been conditioned nowadays with characters to more more so with longer films, franchises, even the Avengers. We've got multiple movies with TV shows like Game of Thrones. In genre fiction these days, we have a lot more time with our characters, and this because of the finality of the story. And the characters are all 
dead. Uh, I, you said there's going to be extended stuff in the past. I, I've heard a rumor that Cassian may appear in the Han Solo film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's different. It's not like it feels like you're just getting to know them as your friends, and then boop, they're dead. But you kind of expected it going in. Yes. Uh, but it okay. still hurts because you you want to know like with everybody in Episode Seven, the exception of Han, which we already knew, R.I.P. Uh, you know you're going to see them at least once more and learn more about them. It's not the case with this cast. It's well, one and just, done. It's like what you just said, uh, Josh. I think the incredible thing is you said you're just getting to know these characters and then you're hurt because all of a sudden, gone, you know? And I think that's an incredible thing that the writers and the actors managed to achieve that even though we only saw these characters and only knew them so briefly, we still managed to form enough an attachment to them that we wanted to know them more. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. If, if they were really bad, you know, bad characters or ones that weren't very interesting, the fact that they were there so briefly wouldn't bother us as much as it does. And I agree with um, with Ed that as far as like the character part of the story, I think it was a very good move on for Disney and the writers to say, you know what, we're going to take this information, this backstory stuff, and we can maybe put this in a different, more appropriate format, such as a novel or maybe a mini series on TV, and just leave the movie to mm-hmm. focus on its main point, you know, which is lead yeah. up to episode four. Yeah, I'm blanking on the character played by Forrest Whitaker, but I wouldn't be surprised. Saul Guerrero. Saul Guerrero, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a movie down the line where you have Saul Guerrero with Jenner so as a kid. Yeah, mm-hmm. or or at least a, or in a novel. Star Wars, Star Wars Rebels might do it on TV. Exactly, I wouldn't be surprised because of the characters, Jen has the least years where she could fit a backstory in. You know what I mean? She's the youngest. Uh, the others, you could definitely do some backstory with Cashin, or um, but I could definitely see where they would do something like that in Rebels or another novel where you look at Jen's teenage years with Saw. Uh, it'd be interesting. The most interesting one to me, if they do it in that book I mentioned earlier, uh, the hook between Chirrut and uh, Baze was that Baze was a devout monk like Chirrut was, and then he lost his faith. I would love to see the story play out how that happened, and that would be a, a missed opportunity if they don't do it. And the clarification, is is the religion they're talking about faith in the Force? I well, they're sure like guard. I don't know terribly much about it, but uh, they're called Guardians of Wills, W-H-I-L-L-S. They're 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 not like Jedi, but I think they like protect the temples. Is that is Matt? Is that what that is? So they're uh, they are followers of the Force, and they and they are they protect ancient Jedi sites, which okay. is primarily temples. But also just enter any historical site associated with the Jedi. But they're uh, they also appear to be generally some degree of Force sensitive, but yes. not full on Jedi. Interesting. That'd be another thing. Maybe there'd be a standalone story down the line about that order. That'd be an interesting movie to see, or an interesting story no. to learn about. Yeah. Uh, so we'll move on from the characters, and the next thing we're going to talk about, we've already talked about it a little bit. Uh, this is the story. Um, is uh, we the story we already talked about really really quickly. I thought it, the story was really well crafted to do what it was supposed to do. And uh, Colleen, you said that, you know it's a means to the end of showing the handoff. It's Star Wars three point nine. Um, in a way, I don't really have any qualms with the way they crafted the story. Uh, do you guys have any qualms with the story? Not at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that this, the film was set up in such a way that uh, I've heard this uh, criticism about it. Well, it's not ne- a negative criticism. After you're done watching it, you immediately want to plug in A New Hope because yeah. they flow seamlessly into each other. The last scene of uh, Rogue One is pretty much the first scene of A New Hope. They, they blend that well. And I, I thought that the story did a fantastic job of telling a true war story within Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something I will praise infinitely about this film above Episode 7. I love Episode 7, but I did not care one bit about the attack on Starkiller Base. I've seen it twice before. There was no investment for me in it, but the battle over... um, uh, What was the the planet they were above there at the end? 
I can't remember offhand. But the Palm battle... Planet. What's that? Palm Tree Planet. Palm Tree Planet Beach Resort. Yep. When the battle was going on above there to knock out the shield generator to get down to the planet, that was epic. That was a great space fight, and we haven't had a really, really good one since... Well, kind of in Episode 3, but not really since Return of the Jedi. That was really well done. And yes. You know, I enjoyed the space battle, and I thought just... It reminded me of the Battle of Endor, because you had equal tension in space and on the planet. That's uh, right. So I, I really enjoyed that. I don't know if it was intentional to kind of mirror the structure of the Battle of Endor, but it felt like that to me. Uh, and the, sta- the really stakes... Good. The stakes felt higher in this one well, because we already knew going in that there was a very high probability that most, if not all, of the characters would die. And then, uh, and like I said, D- Disney took a gamble on playing with a darker subject matter, and I think it paid off. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, I love the tone of this so, movie. I was so excited that they showed depth to the Alliance. The Alliance wasn't all just like, oh, it's a high, perfect ideal, like the Death Star is bad, so we have to destroy it, that they were thinking practically. And, you know, the Lion's High Command was like, dude, we're not crazy enough to try to, you know, get these plans and go up against this thing. No way in hell are we going to do that. Um, And I love that they showed that. I love that, um, you know, what was it, that the Alliance killed Jen's father, Galen? Oopsies. But... You know, I mean, it's like, what? what's more important, like saving this guy's life or making sure that, you know, the plans and all that stuff don't get into the wrong hands. And I enjoyed that they did that because uh, it kind of shows the dark side, you know, to the rebellion. And then I also really enjoyed the fact that the Empire was, they did what they were supposed to do as, you know, supreme douchebags. Um, like the, the scene over Jeddah, you know, when yes. they had the mm-hmm. um, Star Destroyer was just kind of hanging out, you know, over the city. And then they all beat the crap out of the stormtroopers, and like nothing happened. I watched it going, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Because the Empire, they're jerks. Any kind of slight, you know, towards the Empire, they, you know, rained down with an iron fist. And so when the Star Destroyer like flew away, I was like, wow, this is going <laughs> unusual, high, you know, like level of mercy. And then when the Death Star showed up on the horizon, I was like, yes. <laughs> that was such an intense scene when they fired the super laser on the uh, lower setting mind you that was so awesome that was a great scene oh my i made me so happy because getting for me goes back to the writing it's like they 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 thought this through you know it's not like the bad guys are just bad guys because they're evil and they do evil things like but it kept in character and it made sense at the same time and i was so happy with that okay about the story disney gave us the one thing that we all either consciously or subconsciously always wanted darth vader letting loose and just destroying people in the last scene of that film that was glorious oh my god yes that last scene completely made the entire movie i've watched it like a thousand times on youtube since then and like (laughs) my heart rate increases every time i watch it i can't get enough so with with that scene with with the with the last scene where they're getting ready to board the ship, and Vader is just tearing through them. Mm-hmm. Watch that scene, and then immediately start rewatching Episode Four, and it makes the opening of that movie so, so much more tense and far more terrifying because you <laughs> understand why these people are scared out of their freaking minds on that ship. <laughs> You actually, you, because you know, when, when, the first time you watched A New Hope, and it's like, okay, these guys are scared. Ooh, big guy in, in, in a scary black outfit. <laughs> but then you see that scene, and you know that they know that that happens. like, okay, yeah, it probably took every last shred of courage they could muster just to not run away screaming like man-children. Run away! I highly doubt that, you know, now that all the Jedi are destroyed, that, you know, Vader uses his lightsaber very much. And I think there are very few people that actually ever get to be exposed to that, you know. Um, And uh, that whole scene just made me so happy. Yeah, even fewer who can uh, bear witness to it afterward. Well, you know, and here's the (laughs) thing is, like, because all of us have watched and, well, like, five billion times. And so... 
the amount of the attention to detail that they paid so that the handoff from the end of Rogue One to the start of, you know, um, A New Hope was like, it was just absolutely flawless. And it was just the most amazing, most beautiful thing I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> it's only like two weeks till it comes out on Blu-ray at so, the time uh, of this recording. I was wait, wait, it comes out two weeks from recording? Uh, no, from the from the date of this recording, it's like two weeks till it comes out of. Uh, on We're Blu-ray. releasing in two weeks, so uh, okay. It comes, out, like, so it comes out in April, but if you get it, you can get it earlier on Amazon Video on March twenty fourth. Yeah, nice nope. plug. I want it. I want it on my shelf. So Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so you're, what you're saying is the story gave you to quote Leia, it gave you hope. Yes, it did. It's the most amazing thing. I was literally shaking for like half an hour after that movie. And we were, I mean, it, it like, and like you established, the finality of the characters, but it, it's, it's seamlessly integrated into the Star Wars overall trilogy. What an yes. amazing feat. Yes. But here's the key question. Is it better, and is what they've done so far, better than the canon that they scrapped? Matt, that's, uh, that's, uh, mm. <laughs> it's a tough one. Matt, I'm going to start with you. Because I know that all of you have, have different levels of experience with the extended universe. Matt, are you okay so far with the scrapping of the extended universe in place of Episode Seven and Rogue One? Okay, as someone who has read a a sheer volume of of the what I believe we call now called the Legends universe, like a sheer volume of it that. I don't particularly care to admit how many of them I have read, because it's most of them. I was going to say all of them, <laughs> Three it, times? <laughs> it may... The number may or may not have three digits. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <sighs> the Extended Universe was this massive, beautiful pseudo-collaboration between all these fantastic authors that I absolutely love. Uh, one of whom I'd love to shout out to right now being Kevin J. Anderson. And it was this whole huge, fantastic, beautiful expansion on these films that we grew up absolutely adoring. That being said, Rogue One and Episode Seven are both absolutely fantastic movies that I am happy to call Star Wars. So I, I think that, to me, they kind of coexist to me as two separate inter. I see them as different interpretations of Star Wars. It would it would be to me it's like the extended universe books are like reading Macbeth while episode 7 and Rogue One would be like seeing it done by uh, see, seeing it done as a stage play. Like actually seeing it performed. I kind of look at the EU now obviously it's kind of like an, you know, alternate universe. <laughs> Why not a parallel kind of, universe? Well, yeah, you know yeah. Uh, that's getting into Star Trek territory, but you know. Yeah, well, see, there's so Talk many similarities, you. you know, because in in the in the extended universe, and obviously, I think all three of us are showing our age by calling it the EU because <laughs> what it's referred to for the longest time, and only recently it's been changed to Legends. So, um, forgive me, listeners, if I keep calling it that. But lab um, snappers. but um they have a lot of similarities because um in legends uh luke has a son whose name is ben you have ben skywalker now in canon after you know episode seven there's ben solo Solo. Mm -hmm. yeah um there's and also in the in the extended universe uh you know you have a skywalker descendant who does turn sick you know, um, you have like the New Republic is also struggling, you know, with remnants of the Empire. Um, and Luke does attempt and, and the EU does succeed to rebuild the Jedi Order, uh, which is also then later threatened by the Sith. It just happens over a longer period of time um, because, in, you know, than it does in in episode what we've seen so far in episode seven. As far as like with Rogue One, though, comparing with what was previously uh, canon, I think it's pretty much the same. There really wasn't much uh, really explored, you know, prior to episode four, you know, 
Not really mm-hmm. not much. More um, so the fan fiction that was that territory than, than extended universe novels proper. I want to say, yeah, nothing really official. The EU um, took place after, you know, um, Return of the Jedi. The, the first novel was The Truce at Bakura, which occurred immediately after Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And they came from there. And I have to agree with Matt. The fact that you had this huge uh, collaboration between all these different authors who all just kind of like came together on their own and agreed, like when this book comes out, this is, we're going to pick up at the story from this point forward versus coming out with their own interpretation. I think that was absolutely incredible and amazing that that happened. Yeah. I, I have read a little bit of the extended universe, not, not nearly as much as the three of you. And I do feel like that might be the sad, not the saddest, but the most rueful maybe part of this is that, it slightly delegitimizes or takes away some of the force of that amazing collaboration amongst authors across years and across the territory and everything else uh, to create such a, an amazing fabric for the Star Wars mm-hmm. universe. Yeah. But at the same time, we all think that Episode Seven and Rogue One are really strong on their own merits as well. Uh, so maybe I, I just wish there would have been a way to I, obviously, I'm not in favor of establishing another parallel universe because that would be too much like what they did with Star Trek with the Prime Universe and the Abrams Universe. But just a way to – because I feel like when they – when Disney bought the property, they went out of their way to wipe away the canon like with a magic eraser. Well, they kind of had to just for legal reasons. I mean it would be so difficult to get the rights to all different plot lines and characters that exist. I can only imagine what a giant headache that must have been for the writers, because if they can't coming up with ideas and then somebody going, oh, wait, we can't do that. It's already been used. Oh, where was that used? Oh, book number 13 of the EU. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also, if if they had included it and made it canon, they're really bound on what they can do. If they wanted to tell the Yuuzhan Vong War or any of that stuff, Mark Hamill's too old, was too old for it. I mean, you know, to keep it in line with, you know, the story as it was, they couldn't mesh it up correctly. And I understand their decision to kind of nix it. But yeah. uh, at, at the same time, uh, I don't think it really delegitimizes it because you can still read it and enjoy it. And Disney's smart enough to rebrand it as Legends and still sell it and make money off of it. Absolutely, but uh, yeah. I, I think it's too early to really say that with two movies that, you know, it's better or worse than what preceded it. But at the at the same time, they're both strong entries, and mm-hmm. you can still enjoy the other stories as they were. And speaking to the new canon of novels, what I've read has been very good so far. It really has. And uh, you were talk- for example. You Catalyst were talking about one. yes, and you were talking about Timothy Zahn earlier. He's got a Thrawn book coming out in like a month or two. <laughs> so, and that one is canon. So Thrawn's in there. Oh God, he's alive oh, again. He was yeah. he was a magnificent bastard. Yeah, well, he's he's going to be a central uh, I know know he's in Star Wars Rebels now, but he's getting his own novel as well. So he's he's a canon character. So what Disney's doing is they're picking and choosing, but they're all they are taking some of the elements we like from the old canon and incorporating them into the new. I would personally love to see Matt, one of Matt's favorites, and I would love to see them do an an adaptation of the Bounty Hunter story. Right. And that, they, they could do that. Yeah, so, something I, I would absolutely love to see. I mean, I, I would be absolutely 100% satisfied with the whole works of the whole thing that doesn't involve Jar Jar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that wasn't coming. If they would at least pay homage to the extended universe. And the, the, there, there's two particular areas where I would like to see that done. I would like to see some re- reference to the courtship of Princess Leia, because I think that was one of, if not the best book in the entire extended universe. I absolutely adore that book. What was I've that read. planet again? The planet. Ape, <sighs> apes. Planet Hape. The Hapes clus- Cluster. Uh, something like that. It's been so long <laughs> since I've read it. It's been about ten years. But, but that, and something that they could still incorporate into Episode 8 or 9. That, that, that they still could do is some homage or reference or something along those lines to the Kevin J. Anderson series, Young Jedi Knights, which I personally feel opened up Star Wars to a lot of the people younger than myself. Yeah. I, I, 
I, I was really probably at the upper edge of the age of people who really got into the Young Jedi Knight books because mm-hmm. it was this fantastically written series. And, you know, it was Han and Leia's kids at the Jedi, you know, training to become Jedi under Luke on Yavin 4. Yep. And even if they could just make reference to him using the temple on Yavin 4 as a Jedi school before the events of Episode 7. It honestly seems like they might be setting up for that. They could do that, you know, because it's not clear where his school was. Right, and it would not be surprising to anyone for it to be on Yavin 4, a place just teeming with life, much like Dagobah minus the swampy bits, (laughs) and there's already a massive Jedi temple there. It sounds like you belong on the Yavin Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) <laughs> he, he sells he sells timeshares. <laughs> visit our temples and outposts. Fine dining. <laughs> Can you imagine Dagobah fine dining? Yeah, lizards and but moss. We already, dis- and- we already discussed this. Yoda's LSD soup. <laughs> <laughs> That's our hashtag for the week, folks. Yoda's LSD soup. Oh, you can get it at Panera Bread. Tell them B and Q sent you. You know, me. I would really like to see, A, I want to see Leia with a lightsaber. Has to happen. Just saying, I would love that. And um, I would also like to have an explanation as to why she named her son Ben. Because I get why Luke would do that, you know, but I, I don't understand. I don't really see that Leia had much of a relationship with Obi-Wan to name her son after him. Well, to, to be fair, if, if not for Luke's interactions with Obi-Wan... Uh, they wouldn't have ever got there to save her or assist in saving her. Right, so I she never saw she had no interaction with Obi Wan no. at all. She sh- I mean, I would have imagined she would have named her son after her Alderaan father. Bale, yeah, that would have made more sense. Yeah, but do you know who you know who did have a lot of interaction with him at the beginning of the film was Han. True. Yeah. Yeah, but Han called him a crazy old wizard. Yeah, but yeah, I think Han. I think Han probably after the fact grew to have a very high respect for him because if not for him, they would have never made it off the Death Star. If it wasn't for Ben, he never would have made it to the Death Star. <laughs> this is also true. Can we just agree that his middle name is probably Greedo? Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna slap you so hard when I see you. <laughs> I'm just saying. Ben Greedo Solo. To the moon, Alice. (laughs) (laughs) Better than Jabba. Better than Jar Jar. What if his his middle name was Anakin? No. Ooh. What if it it was something like George? Her son's name was Anakin in the extended universe. Plot twist. I know, but that extended universe was about before those crappy prequels, and we got to see what George Lucas did with Anakin. The, the Clone Wars TV show did a lot to fix that. They did a lot of heavy lifting. I actually liked Anakin in the Clone Wars. I still hate Hayden Christensen. Okay, well, I'm not Sorry talking about Anakin Skywalker. I'm talking about Anakin Solo from the EU. No, okay. I, you were saying you na- I thought you were implying because they named him after Anakin. But what I was saying was they, they had, hadn't they written that story before the uh, prequel films came out? Or maybe like ten, five, ten years. Yeah, so. Yeah. They might not have used Anakin if they saw Hayden Christensen's performance. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah, and one thing I'll say in addition, I, I would not be surprised because Disney's going to milk this cash cow until it has nothing left to be milked. Well, they've already said they're releasing a film every year until it stops profiting. Exactly. I wouldn't be surprised if the next official trilogy, quote-unquote, is the Song Vong storyline adapted for the movie. Oh, no, no, no. God, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I can't do no. another trilogy. It needs to... I'm, Disney, please, for the love of all that is holy, end at episode nine. I just can't deal with more Yuzong Vong. What if Jar Jar is secretly a Yuzong Vong? It would explain a lot. A uh, little uh, brief aside, uh, in uh, the newest... One of the newer novels, and I haven't read it yet, they actually give some insight into what actually happened to Jar Jar after the events of everything in... Uh, the Aftermath series, I think the last book was called Empire's End. He becomes a, like a peddler, right? Yeah, he's like a peddler. Does it, does it involve him dying horribly? Colleen, that's that's where we come in. That's right. And I think it, it's about that time. Do we have any final thoughts on Rogue One? I guess we need to answer the actual question. 
Is Rogue One a strong addition to the Star Wars canon? I'll start with Ed. I think it's a very strong addition, and it was some of the most fun I've had in a movie theater in a long time. I loved it. Colleen? Hell yes. I It made me shake, and I had not feel that way, so energized and so excited to have seen movies since I saw the original trilogy back in 1997. There you go. Matt? I think it was an absolutely exceptional film in its own right. I will say I do not think it was as good as the original trilogy that mm-hmm. being said it is a welcome and strong addition to the star wars canon and i'm going to agree with the panel we have unanimity a rare showing of solidarity at the bnq headquarters <laughs> we all agree kumbaya sith lord uh anyway so we, we all agree, unlike last week, where we all ended up in different universes, which is good. This is nice. We can all be nice to each other. Uh, but maybe the listeners disagree. Maybe so. And if you do, I want to hear from you. Email us at bnqfeedback at gmail.com or tweet us at bnqpodcast. We've got over 2,500 people on Twitter, and we want you to be number 2501. Uh, so please join us there. Or send us an email, because we love emails, and we will read it. On this episode, much like we read our Carrie Fisher tributes earlier tonight, uh, which, by the way, thank you again to everyone who submitted uh, that uh, content. And if you would like us to, if you want to comment on that, please let us know. And once again, thank you, Carrie Fisher, for being awesome, and we will remember you forever. Uh, But I believe we have one final thing to take care of before we say our goodbyes. We have to do what Colleen so nicely asked us to do. Matt, please kill off the Gungan. May he Whoa. die horribly. I guess I should make it so. Uh, oh! Well, you need to say it with a British accent. I, I, I don't want to insult the British by doing a British accent. I know how bad I am at it. Well, John, tonight, Jar Jar Binks found out that there was another Star Wars movie coming out, and he decided he wanted to be in it. So he took his fried lizard on a stick to scare him and was at the base of the Citadel Tower in the final scene. And he was the actual target of the super laser test fire. (laughs) Zero in on the Gungan. Burn him alive. And for that, Governor Tarkin is our hero of the week. I always knew I loved that man. Tarkin for Space President. On that note, thank you, Ed. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Colleen. You're welcome. And thank you, Matt. Live long and kill Gungans. Yes. (laughs) For for all the panel, I'm Josh. We'll see you again. Same Star Wars time, same Star Wars channel next week. Good day. Good day.